this podcast, Heather Zetterberg, Chair of Lower School Math, speaks to parents about the Grade 4 Math Curriculum. So just for those of you who are new um, to FOOT, welcome and um, thanks to everybody for coming this morning. Uh, my name is Heather Zetterberg. This is, I think, my 15th year here. I kind of, the years go so quickly, it feels like my second. Um, but so my role has been that of math specialist since I started, and I get the opportunity to work with students from kindergarten through fifth grade and work with teachers from kindergarten through fifth grade and then also into the middle school. Um, one of the things that we've learned over the years and we continue to learn as we seek to grow and improve is that we really need to work on stepping up our communication. So because of a lot of the feedback that we've been getting from parents and families, we realize that we need to do a much better job of telling you what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and when we do it. So that's really the intention of this event. And next year we'll have a fifth grade event that we hope that you'll be able to come to. Um, so, so as to not overtax you with yet another survey, I won't be sending out a survey about how you feel, felt about this morning's event. But if something comes to you and you feel that it's important to share, uh, something that's going to be helpful moving forward and make sure that we continue to improve and do better, please feel free to shoot me off an email and that feedback is really valuable. Um, so let me give you an overall view of what we're going to be talking about this morning. I'm going to try to cover a lot of information in a short amount of time. Your time is valuable. I want to make sure that I do my best to finish by 920 so that you are able to get on with your day. But what I wanted you to do is, after having the experience and a very small sliver of experiences that our students have in the classroom on a daily basis, I want to kind of put that in context for you. So I'm going to talk with you first about our beliefs and values and what we really think are important as part of our math program. I then want to talk about differentiation, which is one of the ways that we work towards delivering that program in as respectful a way to children as possible, being sure that we take into account what their strengths and vulnerabilities are. Then I'm going to start to funnel down into more of the details that will eventually get us through what the overall curricular expectations are this year. And then you'll also be walking away with a list of the division objectives. So all of the skills that your child, now that we're at the start of the division unit, all of the objectives that your child by the end of the unit this year will be able to do and this, the tasks that they'll be able to perform. Um, what's really important is that we get started with the whole idea of who we are and what we believe. <coughs> so I'm, I apologize for the fact that it's as small as it is. Um, in trying to conserve a little bit of space on paper, I wanted to make sure that we condensed it. So first of all, what's so important is that anybody can learn maths to high levels. And the reason why I say that is because there's oftentimes been this assumption that certain people are born with a math brain, and if you're not born with a math brain, then you're doomed. Well, what research has actually shown us is that is absolutely not true. What really matters is the fact that we have opportunities to continue to explore, to continue to grow, to continue to make connections, and that the uh, critical component is that we also take a look at 
this notion of inquiry, that if we are really thinking deeply about questions and concepts, we're going to be a little bit more invested, we're going to have the ability to make more connections, and the learning is going to be more meaningful. But what is one of the most fascinating sources of this information about brain plasticity and learning and growing over time came from a lot of studies that were done with the London black cab drivers. And what they found was that in order for these cab drivers to be able to learn these routes, so they had to be able to learn 20,000 different road, roads and 25,000 different destinations before they were certified as a cab driver, what they found was that there were parts of their brain in this study that continued to grow based upon the more experiences that they had and the more challenges that they encountered. So what also is interesting is once those challenges dissipated and once those opportunities to struggle went away, those portions of their brain shrank. So it's really important as we're talking about moving forward that we keep in mind that there's power in the struggle and there's also power in um, just having multiple experiences. So Joe Bowler is <coughs> a person who really has has become world-renowned as a mathematics educator. She happens to be a mathematics educator at Stanford University, which is really on the forefront of where a lot of math education research is happening. And one of the things that she also put in front of us as the math curriculum committee this year um, is the fact that we know about the growth mindset from the works of Carol Dweck, but we also have to think about in terms of the math mindset and making sure that we don't have and we don't instill in our students a fixed mindset. That yes, you always can grow. Sometimes it might feel like that's unattainable, but we know that we can support you and get you along the way. But what's really fascinating is that just believing that you are good at math is a fixed mindset and that in and of itself is damaging. What research has shown time and time again is if you feel like you are that math student, that when you encounter something that's a little bit of a struggle, you don't know how to wrestle with it. And what happens is you would rather preserve yourself and your emotions and shut down and put it off to the side or maybe say, oh, it's boring because that might be a safer way of dismissing something than it is to dig in more deeply. So even if you've got a child to say, oh, I'm the best at this, we always have to be careful that we're looking for students to not feel like they've arrived, but to continue with that growth mindset and understand that the struggle might be really challenging and uncomfortable for some students, but we have to support them and continue to give them those experiences in order to keep growing and in order to grow a growth mindset. Now, so all of this is really all well and good, and we want to make sure that our students have all these flexible experiences, but we can't put aside and we can't ignore the fact that having mathematical fluency is a key critical component. So while we do a lot of investigations, while we do a lot of game types of activities that are rich in having to think deeply, there still is a place and a very important place for things like being accurate with your computations, obviously, for being efficient. So having a little bit of speed along with memorizing and recalling some facts and some skills and some strategies. But more importantly, we have to be able to be flexible we have to be able to choose the appropriate strategy, and we have to be able to apply those skills. The more we have those basic core skills under our belt, 
the more facile students can be in applying and the more available they are to use their brain flexibly. We, we talk in the lower school about this is mental gymnastics time. Like this is the time when you really have to be thinking about connections and turning your brain and your ideas upside down and flipping them around. So we want to make sure, I want to make sure that the message that you're walking away with isn't, oh, well, all that hard work that my kids did, learning those multiplication, division, addition, subtraction facts, that doesn't mean anything. No. We are now at the point where we are expecting them to be applying those skills consistently, readily, and flexibly. But I just wanted to make sure that we kind of establish that. So the second thing that is a really important um, belief system and a value that we have is that mistakes are valuable. What we know from, again, more research, and this is the uh, most recent research and a meta-analysis of other um, psychologists' research, is by Jason Moser, who found um, that just by making a mistake, not even being aware of having made a mistake, but just the nature of the mistake and that kind of disconnect and discord in your brain, something doesn't quite feel right, but I'm not quite sure, is enough to help your brain grow. And it's important for kids to understand that making mistakes is part of the trajectory of learning. So a lot of teachers, I, I was talking with a fifth grade teacher yesterday who was saying, oh my gosh, we had the greatest mistake celebration. And that's really critical. And I, I mean, it might sound crazy depending upon what your experience has been, but one of the greatest things is for a teacher to put an error up on the board, project an error up on the board and say, let's figure out what was so cool about this. What kinds of learning do you think that this child was you know, coming away with because of these mistakes? So I won't bore you with the details of the different kinds of responses that our brain makes, and that's certainly within your packets, but it's really fascinating. We don't even need to correct the mistake we don't even need to be overtly conscious of the mistake that we've made, but just the nature of having made a mistake is helpful in growing our brains. Along that same line, I think about our friend Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician and religious philosopher, who back in the 1600s already had a pulse on this, and that is that the struggle alone pleases us, not the victory. Well, if you ask any lower school child that, they might disagree with you. <laughs> However, what we as the grown-ups know is that if you're struggling now, you're developing not only those learning skills, but you're developing those life skills. And those kinds of experiences travel with you. I actually got a text from my daughter day before yesterday. My older daughter's in London, and there was uh, the tube stop that she normally uses was shut down. And so as she's waiting for the bus, because she had to figure out an alternative, method, she texted me, she said, now I understand why you made me struggle, because I know how to get back to my apartment, but my classmates have no clue. And I think that that was just like one of those poignant, and how timely since I'm doing this talk today, things that, you know, she, and, and then of course the follow-up text was, but I'm still mad that you didn't help me with my AP Calc test. <laughs> I don't care, but you know what, she got home safely, and when you're that far away, I'm okay with that. So, you know what? Don't help with the AP, Calc, BC class. They'll get through. They'll survive. Um, but anyway, Wilma Rudolph happens to be one of my idols. She's a woman who was born with polio, overcame complications of polio as a child, and ended up being a well-decorated Olympic athlete in track and field. 
So she comes from a very different perspective about what struggle is about, but believe me, the reward is not so great without the struggle. There's nothing that feels as good to a child, and I can see these faces light up on a daily basis. When they're digging in, they feel like giving up, but I don't dare give up, probably because they know that I'm not gonna let them, and then they get there. And it's, I actually had one student who I really thought, a third grader, was going to explode in tears. He was just so incredibly proud of these accomplishments. Again, that's because he's been making mistakes, he's been struggling along the way, and it's something that we embrace. Next, is that questions are really important. A lot of the packet of activities that you will be walking away with, the activities that were from the classroom, at the bottom have questions, guided questions to be asking, probing questions. The whole purpose of questioning is really to get at deeper thinking. It's not about regurgitation of fact. That's not what we really value. What we value is that our kids are thinking really clearly and thinking diversely about a bunch of different things. <clears throat> also in that same text from a couple days ago was, I hated at the time the fact that you answered questions with the question, but now I get it. So start answering questions with questions because that's going to put the responsibility and the ownership of that knowledge back on the child. This just happens to be a collection of questions that I overheard in fourth grade classrooms since the start of the year. So I just, as I've been walking through recording them, obviously anything that doesn't have a yes or a no answer is going to be a really good open-ended question. Whoops. Next thing is that math is about creativity and making sense. The key component of that is the visual nature of mathematics. Again, in American culture, there has been this misunderstanding or this myth that visual components and using fingers are just for the very young students and for the students who are really struggling. What we know, and there's a lot of research, a lot of really good research to show, that the more visual our components are, the more readily our brain is available to do some mental computations and the more readily available our brain is to start making connections. It helps to anchor us, but it also helps us see connections in different ways. And we might not necessarily be a visual learner, but just having appropriate visual support is oftentimes just enough to be able to anchor us, to give us some meaning, and also put it into context. One of the things that um, often happens, there are different math um, kind of support programs out there, many of which say point blank, reprimand your child if they use their fingers as they are calculating. Unfortunately, that is absolutely the worst recommendation you could ever make. The best recommendation that you can make is that if you're using your fingers, be able to see them. Don't try to hide them. Research is also showing that just the sense of finger perception is also really valuable. So what research has also shown us is that with a child, for example, in first grade, which is where the body of research was mostly done, if they are able to, without looking, be able to tell which finger you're pointing to, long-term studies have shown that their rate of mathematical success is greater over time, and that that is a better indicator of future math success than a child's ability in first grade to be able to recall basic facts. And so there's a lot of different things that are coming out about that. And so as I was wrestling with this with one of a colleague of mine from another school, 
she made a point. She said, well, you know, just think about it. When you do a presentation or when you talk, do you ever have your hands by yourself, by your side? No. It's all about the gesturing, and that's all part of helping to deliver the message. If I stood here like this the entire time, not only would I look absolutely pathetic and not engaging, but it wouldn't help to convey the strength of my message. So you are experiencing the importance of having that visual component. So a visual component is not just about finger use. It's not just about having a graph or a table or a chart. It's not about wa only about watching a video. Those are also important things. But it's also about gesturing. And we know that you know, in music classes, for example, our children are learning things because of the teacher's gestures as well. And we sometimes see children replicating those gestures to internalize it in order to be able to move along. Um, <clears throat> next takes us to math being about communications. And we often talk about math having its very own language. But as part of this, so not only are there specific terms that are important for students to understand, we want there to be a lot of discussion. We want there to be questions and answers and um, tasks that kids are involved in that have multiple solutions. So a lot of the games that you were doing today, for example, um, remainder race, where you had to think about what the different possibilities were, or some of the ones where you had to think, create different division problems to satisfy different criteria. It's about thinking out loud and thinking internally and being aware of your thinking to move you forward. Um, this is just a reminder for me to say it's important <coughs> to write down intermediate steps. It's important to record our computations because that's what we as mathematicians call reasoning. And if we were to hold all of our thinking in our head as a youngster, it's going to work for us right now. But we've got mathematicians who are working on one problem for a decade. Are we expecting that they're going to be able to retain all of that information and all of their thought process? No. So we get into the habit now, but really it's within the context of communication. Next, and I know that anybody who's spoken with me before, is the idea that faster does not mean smarter. And actually, a lot of people would go so far as to say, if you are worried about being quick, I'm worried about you not thinking deeply. And so that's really important that we also make sure that we're not sending that message to our students. I would much rather have you wrestle with one problem, wrestle deeply, and walk away with understanding then just regurgitate step after step after step and come up with 10 answers. Because that's just telling me that in the moment, you've got the rhythm going, as opposed to really understanding the content. Um, Dr. Miriam, excuse me, Ms. I always get this wrong, Ms. Mirzakhani um, was the first and only woman's um, Fields Medal um, recipient. So the Fields Medal is often referred to as the Nobel Prize of Mathematics. It's awarded every four years to a mathematician or up to four under 40 at that time. So the last one that was given was in 2018. And what was interesting is that she kind of connects all of these values and principles together in a lot of her statements. She always considered herself a very poor mathematician. She also was a very visual mathematician. She won the Fields Award based upon a lot of the visual geometry principles that she was working with. But she also was very slow. And she said that's what helped her arrive at all of these, that she was enjoying the process of sitting back, thinking, engaging, and reflecting. Again, it's, it's nice to have all of these wonderful examples for our students. Um, but it's also important that we set up the expectation and the experiences for them. 
And lastly, so far as kind of our core beliefs go, is that mathematics isn't about performing, it's about the process of learning. So while we do have ongoing assessments, we do have progress monitoring tools that we use in the classroom, the most critical component was, is what happens after those assessments, where the teachers are sitting with the children conferencing, where they're saying, where did you go wrong? What was your thinking? How could you approach this differently? And that it's not about being labeled or identified in relation to where the rest of the class is, but it's about looking at where are you in terms of acquiring these skills and what has your growth trajectory been? So all of that gets us into how. So those are our beliefs about what. Now we just need to dig into how it is that we go about providing appropriate instruction. So we talk about differentiation. And differentiation is a very intentional, systematic approach to making sure that our students are learning what they need in a very kind of developmentally appropriate manner. So this is a great overview. I'm not going to be able to talk about all aspects of this, but we're going to talk about three so far as um, how things are, how we differentiate. We differentiate content, so what it is that we're teaching. We differentiate the process. You had the experience. It could have been a game. It could have been a worksheet. It could have been an open-ended question that children in the class had to solve. And it can be the product. So for example, some students at the end of this division unit are going to be making an instructional video about how to perform division. Some other students might, at the end of this division unit, make a chart of as many different ways that they learned or that they came up with to do long division, but not just doing that long division. Um, other students might be trying to do a public service announcement about why division is important in real life. Those are the types of different products that we make available to children, but of course there's also the component of choice. There's choice along the way. Students are being reflective of what it is that they are learning. We obviously have a plan for them. We want to make sure that we get them from point A to point B and work through all of the curriculum, but we also want to make sure that along the way they have a voice. We have to be careful though because sometimes life gets hard and we don't want to have to struggle, so we have to find that balance between what a child feels that they really want to be doing because it's their comfort zone and where we know a child needs to be because it's out of their comfort zone and they're able to struggle. Um, well, I'm going to just zip ahead through all of these in order to get to the idea of content. So this gives us a broad overview of relative percentages of time that students in different grade bands would be spending on different topics. So we can see that pretty much between this middle section here, we've got pretty much a 20% balance of instruction on all of these times. But when I look at this, there are a couple things that don't settle well. While it's a great tool, this is from NCTM, the fact is, is we've got these very broad categories. And the second thing is, is that algebra rests alone. We know that the critical underpinnings need to be that problem solving and reasoning and proof, including algebraic reasoning, abstract reasoning, logical reasoning, quantitative reasoning, and visual spatial reasoning, underlie everything, and that they permeate and kind of get soaked up into all of those computational skills and all of those other math skills. This graph gives you a little bit of a better idea of what the construct of our fourth grade curriculum is. This is the one where don't look at the black and white copy, but definitely look at the color copy. <coughs> 
And these are flexible, and these do change, and there are certain students that need to spend time on other topics and other skills. But what we are looking at here is really that about 50% of our time is working on a lot of number and operation skills. There's also a bit of time that we use working on measurement, which includes time and making change. And we also spend about 15, 14% of our time specifically talking about geometry. But again, understanding that those other processes are underlying everything. Um, and then we, we do consciously break out the whole idea of working with data and data analysis and probability as separate and distinct at this point. There's obviously a time when it merges, but now when we're developing these skills, this is where we are. So that gives you a bigger overview. In your packet, you're going to see the math checklist. Now, my math pacing guide for fourth grade that lists every single objective is 23 pages long. You do not want a 23 page long math checklist. So what we try, well maybe you do, if you do, just let me know. Um, but what we try to do is to develop clusters and chunks to give you a general overview. And as you know, or if you don't know because you're new to foot, that there will always be a section for comments. And there's always a great deal of dialogue that comes into play as conferences happen. What I wanted to do was to kind of bring you in even more in a narrow field and get down to more of the nitty gritty by also giving you a two-page listing of the objectives in the division unit. Now, unfortunately, I said, um, you know, the objectives in blue, of course, and then I printed it black and white, um, are not for all students. So we know what we want every student to be able to do by the end of the unit, but we do know that there are some students who are accelerated beyond that. So just because the students have achieved those fourth grade objectives doesn't mean we end there. So I just gave you a few kind of hints about where we go next if students have mastered those objectives. Uh, if you'd like more information on that, definitely talk with the, your child's teacher because they can give you real specifics. Um, I'm just going to cruise through a bunch of these and get back to the whole idea of readiness. So how is it that we determine what a child is ready for? And what's important is that when we talk about readiness, we're looking at where a child's entry point is on a given skill. A child's entry point on division might be very different from their entry point into geometry or into fractions. So there's constant assessment that's happening. While yes, we do have uh, pre-assessments, assessment is happening on a daily basis, on a minute-to-minute -minute basis, where teachers are really taking a look at all of their different tasks, all of their different performances, interviews and observations to be able to see where a child's strengths are and where their vulnerabilities are. We take that information and we develop flexible groupings within the classroom, a lot of changing up. So one, by, one person might go work in a small group, it might be one-on-one, -on -one. I might be called in, I might be, pull, you know, be pulling students out. But then three times a year, this is our second time this year, we have more formal in kind of instructional flexible grouping breakouts. Sometimes it's about where their readiness is, sometimes it's about their interest level, sometimes it's about their learning preferences. But these are times when three classrooms get broken into four or five different groups so that the groups are a little bit more um, intimate and the group sizes are smaller. There's a lot of shuffling that happens through that perhaps 10 instructional day period of time. And if a child is going to the teacher and saying, 
this is feeling really over my head, the question then goes back to the child, do you want to shift with another teacher, shift with another group, stay with the group, get different supports? Um, this happens three times a year in fourth grade, it happens three times a year in fifth grade, at least on this formal basis. And then once we get into sixth grade, there's more ability grouping into different sections in the middle school. Um, what I, I spoke about choice being a great motivator, which is why your children had so many choices in the math packet this morning. All of those packets are going home with the students by the end of the day tomorrow. We encourage you to be doing those activities with them at home, playing the games, letting the kids select some, but also don't let them just do what they want to do. Maybe say, well, teach me about this, or show me this, or how would you start this problem, or how would you tackle this activity? Helping them out of their comfort zone and struggle and wrestle a little bit. Um, so lastly, I just want to bring up our friend Albert Einstein, which as a group of my fifth graders say to me every day, he is probably the most epic failure of all time, which is true. He wrestled with getting a job in, for over a decade. He was this brilliant man and became a file clerk at the Swiss Patent Office. And finally, 10 or 12 years later, he was nominated, well, he was nominated 10 or 12 times by the man who first refused to hire him. And he won, of course, we know where he ended up with incredible awards. But what's important is that we are aware of where students are coming into a process of learning, but we are also very flexible in understanding how students need to be assessed as we are moving ahead. Not everybody is going to be able to show what they know using one standard assessment tool. So your teacher, your child's teacher might say, this is what happened with the post-assessment, but I don't think it's reflective of what your child's abilities are. This, however, and then be able to show you some examples, really illustrates the depth of knowledge. They're just not a pencil and paper type of kid. We do know that those are expectations moving forward, so we do have some of those opportunities and experiences embedded because we know what's coming. But what's really important is that we are careful and intentional from start to finish, not just haphazard about what, what we're doing. That there's, I hope you're, you're walking away with the fact that we are really intentional and careful about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why. But again, feedback is really critical. So I thank you very much. I went over, sorry. <laughs> um, but if, I certainly understand if you need to leave and if you have specific questions for me, I'm happy to entertain them uh, when I'm off mic. Um, and um, again, keep the conversations going with your students. And first line of communication, please connect with your child's teacher if you have questions. I'm oftentimes brought in for, um, for other questions that, that parents might have, and I'm happy to engage in that. But your teachers, you know, your child's teachers really know your kids so well in so many ways that unfortunately I might not. So I definitely hope that you touch base with, with them continuously. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Foot Podcasts are a production of the Foot School, an independent school for grades K through nine located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.